From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. Welcome everybody to another edition of Groundsman Conversations. I'm joined today by our wonderful uh, maritime colleague, Giles Morgan. Uh, Where do I find you today, Giles? Well, I'm in sunny Wandsworth. Um, I don't move far these days. I'm too old to travel and having uh, been to San Moritz and bust myself up on various idiotic sporting adventures, I've been told by the missus just to stay home and keep safe. So that's what I'm doing. How about you? Are you in a a beautiful Como? I am, yeah. It's full spring here, getting very warm. uh, So I'm enjoying that. We do not have uh, Mr. Williams today. Uh, Of course, we know by now, Giles, that uh, we don't ask too many questions. Um, You've got a major bank run. And of course, Mr. Williams (laughs) calls in sick. (laughs) Yeah, I think if you look at the correlations of the global economy and various meltdowns and then put Mr. Williams's uh, whereabouts, the two, the two. Yeah, the, the FBI might might start to look suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> so it's you and I, and um, we've got a wonderful guest that we'll introduce in a minute. But uh, we've got we've got we've got five minutes, and, I, and I've been dying to ask you about this. Um, you know, I saw this thing. Okay, we've had quite a decent Six Nations Scotland, uh, but you know, very you decent, haven't. Very good. Wales no. haven't, but you know, England. No. I mean, like fifty points. Jeez, I mean, can can you put a little bit of context on what's going on here in this world of rugby? Well, I, I'm for the for, for the, those who are listeners who know me, I'm going to try very hard not to be uh, smiling um, because I'm not actually. Um, the, the 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 performance of the French um, at Twickenham was astonishing. This was a team that has been for a few years now bubbling to the top. Um, and I was amused. There was some wag saying it's a pity the score wasn't 10-66, which, of course, was when there was another <laughs> previous invasion of people from from France coming over. But I think 10-53 was the final score. Um, I, I think one can't, one can't take it away from the French. They were awesome, and, and that has to be applauded. It was like watching Federer play tennis at his pomp when he just annihilated people with grace and it just looked perfect and 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 there was something very special about the French. Clearly England are rebuilding, they have a new coach. But I, I think what is very interesting, and I know this is something we're going to drill into a little bit, is it is not coincidental that the state of French rugby and the state of Irish rugby um, is at an all-time high, really, compared to England and Wales, which are going through probably what you might call the doldrums. And the fact that the governance and the way that the sports are run in each of those four countries is a real reflection, perhaps, on performances, both at club level, both particularly at an international level. And whilst the French and the Irish run a very different system in terms of how the game is structured from top to bottom, what they are is inclusive. And what they do do is ensure that the, there is a system that runs from top to bottom and people understand where they sit in that order 
and therefore understand what the hierarchy is. I was looking at the French model again. We obviously had Louis Gavon a, a year or so ago when he was talking about his yes. Biarritz team. And it's interesting to me because it, it runs counter to, you know, the it, those who are proponents of promotion and relegation. But the French run effectively two professional leagues, the top 14 and the second division. But their runners are 30. And so there is promotion and relegation and everybody knows where they're at. They've also been very sensible about getting all of the towns very much connected into the ecosystem of the clubs, which means you don't have the stadium problems and overheads that we see in many sports, particularly in the United Kingdom. And there is also an understanding that the French team, the national team, has an important part within that club structure, but it isn't totally dominant. And in fact, here it is the, the club owners and the, the top 30 clubs who effectively control the ecosystem with the French Federation. And what's resulted over five years? A very compelling league, a very, very compelling um, national team that is being fueled and um, supplied by these clubs that are getting more competitive. They have quotas on international players. So there are international players who can earn a good living, but they're not dominated by international players. So there is a sense of nationalism. And God knows the French love to be nationalistic and they do it very well. And it works a treat. And then you look at Wales, and I know you talked about on, on, on Goal on Goal the other day, and, and you look at England at the moment where... Um, there's a lot of challenges. You know, England, the, the RF, well, the English rugby game is, is run by a club rugby system, but with no system. So you've got different um, factions at war under the sort of badge of the, of the English Rose and the RFU. And it's, it's, not, it's not working very well at the moment. And I hope that, that those in the, in the position, and we've talked about CVC and others, I hope that there is a root and branch re-evaluation of the whole of the sport um, to get this right. Because the Irish, who are much more centralised model under Irish rugby, but they've been doing it under their, their provinces for a long time. They've made it work. The system works. The French are making it work. So there is evidence that it can work, providing you're prepared to change. That's, that's a fantastic summary, Giles. Excellent, excellent. Okay, um, uh, thanks for that. I think it's a good counterbalance to um, some of the stuff we've been saying on, on previous shows, as you mentioned. So I, I'm going to put you back on the spot now uh, and ask you to introduce the guest. Well, we've you and I have been discussing with Grant over the over the, the weeks and months about the, the future generation of where the podcast, particularly where the grounds and conversations go. And we have so many people who get in touch with us um, privately or through through the through the various social media handles to talk about the learning that they're getting from from many of our guests. And as sport is only a reflection on the world, therefore the economy is in, in change, it's uncertain times. So sport is seeing that. And even with the tech revolution and what we've been seeing with Silicon Valley Bank, there's there's still more choppy waters. And we thought, and I think it's a, a brilliant idea, that we've had some of the really big hitters in, in the world of sport, media and finance coming on our shows over the last three or four years to talk about their position. And we think that we should get a whole lot of those back because these people are living this stuff every single day, every single week. And a position, unlike governments, which are never allowed to change their position because it's called a, a, a volt fast or it's they, they, you're not allowed to change your, your, your point of view if you're a minister, apparently. 
finance people are, media people are, because you respond to the, the environment that you live in. And I think that it would be brilliant for the next three or four months, as we're going to do, as we bring some of those people back to say, what do you think now? Where are we now? So to sort of kick off this sort of quasi-series of, uh, of of some of those people coming back, we wanted to get Elliot Richardson um, back on the microphone. Elliot is... Um, He's a, what you might call a renaissance man in, in the world of, yes. of, of sports and business. Um, yes. He's really an insurance guy. He's one of the leading insurance guys and is uh, co-chairman of Howden Tiger, which is a, a recently um, sort of merged uh, part of the Howden empire, insurance empire, um, and has been involved in the insurance game for 30 years and is, is a big, <laughs> big swinging dick in that world. But he was also... Um, chairman, co-chairman of, of Dugout. Um, and I can't remember exactly what year. He can tell us the detail of when Dugout was founded. You probably know, Rog. And Dugout was was pretty revolutionary at the time with, as, a, as a, a football media content business. Um, very much his brainchild working with the top 10 or so clubs. And I think in 2021, 22, something like that, they came together with One Football and with Lucas van Kranich, who's also been on the show and someone who is absolutely uh, redrawing the the kind of media empire around football and I suspect for other sports within a model and Elliot is still enormously involved in that and this combination that I think Elliot provides of both understanding big finance big risk um, and also understanding the media the, the new media as it's probably not anymore but the new media channels of a sport like football the world's biggest game by miles provides us with a really, really interesting insight across the whole board. And I think that's what people love about our shows. I don't want to go into too much micro about insurance. I don't know enough about it. But I do want to get a sense of where the sport, the world of sport is going right now because he knows so many people in our industry and just the best person we could possibly have on a cold March day uh, to spend some time with. Perfect, Giles. So without further ado... Elliot Richardson, welcome to Are You Not Entertained? How are you? I'm very well. Nice to have, uh, nice to be here and looking forward to it. Thank you. Good. Obviously, you know Giles very well. And, I do. I do. Um, and, and Grant is uh, somewhere that we don't know. So um, apologies from him. Uh, that will all become clearer in the coming weeks as we watch the markets, <laughs> I think. <Yeah. laughs> uh, Elliot, let's get right into this because uh, we do all know each other. I think the first thing... Uh, people would like to understand is that you've got this incredibly successful double life. Um, your your day job is a, a very successful insurance and reinsurance entrepreneur uh, with Howden, and Howden is just growing so quickly now. It's one of Great Britain PLC's best success stories, taking on um, the Americans internationally everywhere. We can talk about that a little bit. Uh, and when you're doing that, Elliot, explain how in your kind of like spare time, your coffee break, whenever it is, you manage to create things like dugout, sell it into one football and be in the middle of all the conversations that we all know you are in, in this sports industry. Tell us how you manage to reconcile that. Yeah, well, I'll, um, I'll do my best, Roger. I, I, so I've, um, first of all, you know, the insurance people generally are the kids that parents despaired of and didn't know what to do with. They weren't quite bright enough to be estate agents. So we went into Lloyd's of London. Um, I started in, I'll fit that category perfectly. I started in 88, 
Uh, I wasn't good enough to be a butcher, so my dad definitely didn't want me in Smithfield with him. Um, I was left-handed, which is a nightmare in the butchery world. So, um, uh, so I I was dispensed of fairly quickly, um, and I started at in fact eighty-eight. I was GCSE's first ever year, first year they replaced O levels, um, and started in eighty-eight. Uh, ironically, a company called Alexander Howden, which was the forerunner was actually David's father and family's business going way, way back. And for those I'm sure who are super excited to hear someone talk about insurance at the beginning of a podcast, um, we, um, with the Lloyds of London started as a coffee shop, like most major institutions in London, including the Royal Academy, the stock exchange, they all started as coffee shops with merchants and traders. And Edward Lloyd was the owner of a coffee shop. And a Scottish gentleman called David Howden walked in one day, clockmaker from Edinburgh, and sat down, had a coffee, and said, if that ship sinks on the way to India, and I'll give you £100 if you give me £10. That was how insurance started. So the Howden family go way back. Ironically, David's family were long gone. They'd sold it to the Americans. There is a theme, Roger, around in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, and again in the noughties, um, huge consolidation in the insurance industry. You know, the the Marsh, Aon, Willis, um, enormous firms, and they just created this enormous footprint around the world. And uh, so they golloped up really a lot of the great British and international companies. So David, meanwhile, um, started Howden just under 30 years ago, wanted to sort of almost restore the name, go out and do it, and also wanted to create a company that couldn't be sold. Um, it was, I use the Patek Philippe analogy a lot. We'd look after this for the next generation. And so he started that company with an obsession to build it. Uh, and there was three of him and a dog uh, 30 years ago. And today, um, 29 years later, um, we're now the fourth largest privately owned business in the UK. Fantastic um, uh, global business. Um, we've worked that both very cleverly around organic growth, great incentive schemes for our people. I'll talk about that in a second. And also long-term committed capital, right? So stay private, don't pay dividends, create a really interesting product that can really build for the long-term. And of course, whilst people will criticize whether it's public companies in general, if we were a public company, we'd be a FTSE 50 business. Um, so it gives you an idea of the scale of, of how now. But what we what we don't do is we don't believe in as long as we can possibly stay that way, we would like to because you can play long game. You can do everything for building long term value. But what we did do was we fundamentally felt that we should incentivize our staff and create shareholding in the business. A little bit like if you imagine the old John Lewis style structure. Yeah. So today, you know, just under 40 um, percent of the business is owned by four and a half thousand members of staff unique capital model with long-term three investors with General Atlantic, HD Capital, and CDPQ. And, and we just managed to get the right mix of good M&A. We only ever buy businesses that want to accelerate and come be a part of us rather than they've had enough, they're looking for an exit. They always want to take equity in the business. And we join forces to build the rebellion army, if you like. In reinsurance, it was slightly different. Reinsurance was a true oligopoly. So um, the large three have an 85 market share, 85% market share, which is extraordinary. Um, long gone, the last sort of big player that competed was a company you might both be familiar with was Benfield, which was previously yeah. Harding's business, and then went on to 
become a real challenger. We took that business out while I was at Aon 15 years ago, and there hasn't been another challenger. So three years ago, we decided that we'd create um, the real challenger for that. So over the last uh, three years, we've we've now become the fourth tier one player. Um, we acquired a business called Tiger Risk last year in the US, which was our first big play over there. And I think um, David often uses, for those who are old enough to remember the old Hansen analogy, um, and sort of him and Dominic Collins are probably the best examples modern day of Hansen and White, if you remember those huh. two. Oh, yes. And a lot of similarities between the two. I'm definitely the token Cockney in the management group. Um, but they are... Uh, extraordinary people generous to their staff and there's no fluke that if you get that element right you create um, an incredible business also averaging 20 percent organic growth per year it comes back to if you hire the best talent and give them the best opportunities and empower them you get a very different business so it's, it's a real special british company i think that's emerging and, and and it's been pretty busy to talk about your day job um and i was lucky that i've been really between when Dominic and I sold our business into David eight years ago, um, the last eight years have been an absolute pleasure. Um, equally, always naturally hedge. So make sure you you've also <laughs> got um, um, make sure that your your chairman and CEO are investors in whatever you're doing outside of the business is always a good example. So when they phone you and say where are you? Say Real Madrid. They go, what on earth are you doing with Real Madrid? You're a reinsurance broker. So, um, so we, we make sure that we all, we're very good friends. We trust each other and we get involved in everything with each other accordingly. So that creates that natural alignment and hedge. Um, but the sports side of things started, um, uh, about 11, 12 years ago really was my first sort of, I've always obviously had a huge interest in sport. I'm a bit of a boring data guy and a trend guy. I love watching, I love watching a trend. After being at Aon when we sponsored Manchester United, it was the first time I saw this sort of allure of sponsorship. Um, and Giles, you'll know this trick better than anybody, that um, you just get caught in the headlights of the numbers um, without necessarily, really smart people don't necessarily always dig into those numbers when it's involved no. with sport, more on that later, no. I'm sure. Um, and and so as a result of that, it just sort of irked me. I couldn't understand how there were all these clubs saying they had the, in the football world, all these clubs saying they had so many supporters and we have a huge amount. It's the number one passion point in the world, football. But it just didn't add up. It didn't make sense. So that was my initial starting point. And then I got involved with a couple of projects, which one was ludicrously ambitious, um, failed but actually was actually got quite close to success which was around an all-star game in football which was a very cute idea using the, the ability to vote and capture that data way ahead of its time actually way ahead way um ahead. and and actually we got quite close on that and then finally sort of dugout came up and um dugout became partly because of I'm a Capricorn and entirely stubborn. Um, everyone said, you'll never get it done. You'll never stop wasting your time. You're never going to get the clubs to become shareholders. They won't collaborate. And so we, it was almost became a point to prove a point of principle <laughs> that we could do it. Um, and, you know, it was an absolute extraordinary amount of work went into it from a lot of different people. But that really started the whole sports thing. And from that, Roger, we'll talk about it later, was just an amazing journey to get it done. Millions of mistakes like every other startup. Um, but we ended up creating something that's created long-term trust uh, in the football world. And as a result of that, we have wonderful, deep relationships. 
which opens up many other things. So as a result of that, I juggle them well. I also think stepping out of your own world into other people's worlds is really good for your own day job. Uh, we have a lot of um, listeners who are involved in early stage businesses, people who are entrepreneurial and looking, probably have hopefully listened to this podcast and people like you to talk about the opportunity of big data within sport. What would you say that from your 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 original world within insurance that you were able in terms of practices and principles that you were able to take into dugout to help dugout build as a business what was the what were the yeah. sort of technical chops that you had that were able to 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 translate yeah, i think one of the one of the things that you um certainly if you start if you work in insurance you're, you're very conscious that you know people's faces drop at a party when you tell people you work in insurance so so um <laughs> Uh, so the first thing people forget is that Lloyd's is the last bastion of face-to-face trading. So dealing with people and personalities is, I think, actually insurance people are some of the best in the world. Lloyd's brokers are extraordinary. You know a few of them, Giles. They are incredibly good dinner party guests, and they're also very, very good at uh, handling and syndication. So I think one of the, the, the things that I think we took from the insurance world, which um, – was very high level of integrity. You know, integrity, you know, Lloyd's, Lloyd's is, um, Latin motto is Uberium Fides, which means utmost good faith. So if you, if, you, if you deal with things transparently and you're very clear and you don't play games with people, then you can build long-term trust. That's a real bedrock of insurance. Number two is don't let them all in the room at the same time, uh, ever. Huh. Um, if you only need one to show off, and you're in trouble and you've lost yeah. the whole thing. So what I continually did on dugout and why it took me three years to get them to sign was I never let the clubs get saying, why don't you put us all in the room and pitch it? I went, no, not doing that. And the same in Lloyd's, you would never put all the Lloyd's underwriters in a room on the deal. You'd see them individually. So one thing I would always say is longer, harder, but much higher degree of success is if you pick people off individually, syndicate it that way, and then bring them all in the room when it's done. And I would say they're the two biggest things you take from insurance into any business. Uh, and especially into sport, that's what you've described there is how you run a league. Uh, you can't, if you put uh, no. 20 clubs into a room and you're trying to get a consensus, you're dead. Uh, yep. Running a league is about knowing what the outcome is going to be before you actually start the meeting. Yep. And that's one-to-one. Um, you know, so I think people listening to this will will understand that you getting all these major clubs to become shareholders and dugout is a massive exercise in what you've just described as EQ. And, and what you, you, you're you doing now is, is, is similar. It's difficult to, for people to understand how deeply you've got that trust of the major, major players, especially in the sports industry. But let's come back to dugout for a second. You, your insight there was um, what is now called very casually you know, build your own media hub, direct to consumer, own your own content, monetize it. Dugout um, had that vision and had it by letting the clubs own it. Um, I, I think it worked out very well because you, um, you, you've then uh, translated that into a major shareholding in one football. Uh, we've had Lucas on. I think one football is still, Elliot, still one of the least understood players in the in the sports media sector. 
and and the sports media sector is really in a lot of flux just now. Everywhere you look, you you you, you don't know what's going on. Uh, we had the zone on. You see ESPN trying to copy Buzzer now. Can you explain to us a little bit because you're vice chairman of uh, One Football what that entity is and give us an idea of what you think its future is in the next twenty four months. Yeah. Um, so when when um, when Lucas and I first met. Um, uh, I'm a I'm a big fan of Lucas. I think sometimes he's a little bit. Um, uh, I think, especially because we tend to in the sports world have that sort of British lens on everything, um, which and especially the London lens um, on everything. And I've encountered that enough times through my world of dugout. There's a natural cynicism. Also, you're playing in a big show in London. It's it's a tough environment, and so you have to accept that. That's fine. I think what Lucas has built over the last, and, and and Lucas will be the first to say this, it's not just Lucas, there's a tremendous group of people at OneFootball. You know, most of the clubs, most of the leagues, federations, the quality of the people, you know, the Tom Mullers, the Patrick Fishers, those type of people have, have done a stunning job. And when we when we merged with uh, OneFootball, um, I felt it was the right long-term home for our shareholders, both the clubs and those who have written a check, right? That's important. Number one thing you always have to remember is it's your shareholders first if you have yep, a business. Yep. Um, and you have to get that right. Lucas had created an unbelievable cap table. Both businesses, ironically, a bit like when Helden bought RKH, both businesses needed each other. Um, and that's always a good time for a merger as long as you're honest with that. And I think the fundamental business of one football which is to create um, a, a, an excellent platform destination for the clubs to be able to do things in a, a very simple way with quality content. If you take the simplest part of one football, Roger, it's a it's a really potent animal. You know, it's outperforming all the social media companies in the quality of advertisers that are coming into it. You saw Meta again this morning announced, you know, 11,000 jobs. I always hate reading those, whether whoever it is, it's, that's real people's lives. But, you know, these yep. companies are, are all over the world or it's because whether it's to do with the, um, the situations with iOS or whether it was situations just outgrew their position or people are wising up to, I'm not getting a brilliant, um, and uh, Giles, I know this from the agencies he's worked with, no one ever got fired for spending their money on Facebook, right? Yeah. Um, now I think that's a different question. So the destination, the quality from anyone spending money with one football and the quality of the user experience is really good. So the fundamental business is really, really good. And I'm not here to talk about one football in you know, that's more than capable with other group, but I will touch on it. I think always the danger is when you um you expand too quickly or you focus on too many different things and we're willing to own when we've made mistakes right and web3 was a mistake um and we've we've had to deal with it but again the football world have been unbelievably supportive to us roger because they they see one football inside the world maybe not so much outside of the football world in the media world or otherwise as an incredible force for good, we always team up with the best people. On Web3, we worked with Animoca and Dapper Labs, right? It's not like yeah. you, you've turned up and took a chance. You've gone and we'll always try and find the best possible partners who also had skin in the game, both as shareholders and as overall partners. So on the Web3, we've got some work to do um, uh, with all of our partners to get that into a position that everybody feels good about. But the fundamental business 
is driving incredible amount of data opportunity. And unlike the social media companies, we are willing to share that data with all of our partners so that the ecosystem improves. And, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, later. Fundamentally, the ecosystem desperately needs that data to come back in-house because everybody else got it apart from the ecosystem. Clubs haven't got it. Leagues haven't got it. Broadcasters don't really have it. So it's all sitting outside the ecosystem. So one football is probably doing that better than anybody right now. That's the piece to simply in two minutes. And El, is that why is that why you're seeing the sponsors coming in? Because you're prepared to give them the information that they they need to provide um, the ability to engage with their consumers through the through the the prism of whichever bit of football it is Absolutely. by being open, which is what you're talking about insurance. So this is yeah. about trust and honesty and transparency that allows an ecosystem to to to, to grow. Because I think you're right. I think. God, I won't get on my uh, soapbox. People will start throwing things at me again. But because there is so lack of, there's been so much lack of understanding about data within sport, and that's okay. It's a new world, and people are, you know, it takes a while to adopt and adapt. But still, rights holders and still sponsors are slow to understand what the opportunity is. And I think what One Football has done, and I'm sure it's replicable across both sport, music and entertainment, is by aggregating all of this data together and making it available in a, in a way that benefits the ecosystem, you start to see the investment grow. Because yeah. suddenly, whether it's super targeted at one club or across a range, a sponsor now has a proper view of first-party data. Yeah. And, that, and, and, and that presumably and- is it. And a sponsor is really an advertiser, right? You know, it's the same thing. And sponsors want to see that return. You, whether you were sitting in a company, Giles, or outside, your, your CEO is going to want to see a return or your board is going to want to see a return, right? And it needs to feel tangible. Ironically, I was with a very senior person from the advertising world the other day and he said, ironically, the comment in the next couple of years will probably be no one's got fired for spending money with one football. And, and I said, good, mission accomplished, if that's what we've done, because that was the whole point. Because also the, the, the whole circle wins from it. The sponsors get a great experience. The clubs and other people are getting the ability to understand their data better. And, and one football's on target this year to, in, in the round, probably have as many registered users as the top 20 football clubs combined. Oh, man. And, and for me, I, I, and that's, I mean, that's extra- the trick. Yeah. And I think this is interesting. In the old days that the unkind people would would call sponsorship investment a kind of parasitical marketing. It's just sitting there with no real benefit. Symbiosis is a much more positive word, which says that you think of big organisations and corporations, a Coca-Cola or whoever it may be, the big guns, who have invested and will continue to invest in these passion points in sport, music, entertainment, culture, all of these things. But to have a two-way flow then unlocks the business model and continues to drive that flywheel. Yeah. And I think that the, I met Lucas, obviously, both at the at the Sports Summit in Lake Como last year, and we'd had him on the, the show as well. The thing that's exciting for me about One Football is you're now opening it to creating a pathway that if a brand... Um, or a big organisation thinks that football might be a way of advancing its business. You're creating also a lexicon of how to do it. And yeah. I'm not saying you're the only channel, but 
it's been the explanation that Roger and I bash our heads together so much about the industry because people are beginning to talk in a sort of slightly W1A understanding first party data and really getting getting their they've really got their chops around it now and uh, yeah. really do we and as an agency we really do specialize in it and still the same old stuff is coming out which is at the first opportunity let's sell them a media buy yeah rather than the fan the well, first party and, and, data. and also i say this again yeah you know, i've been a broker for 35 years the middle middleman or middle person has to bring value otherwise there won't be one because yeah. they'll find a way to engage together. So yeah. I always say to my friends who are very senior in the advertising world, we're actually incredibly alike. You obviously get in a solo house easier than I do, but you, you, we're incredibly alike. We've got to bring value. And the smart ones are. They are starting to see it, and that will drag others with them. And, and, and look, we've, got, we've, we've had to do all the same. So the Web3 thing has been very difficult. We've had to deal with that. We've had to deal with making sure that, we, we adapt to the surroundings around people and everything else, no different to any other tech. There's been some tough decisions made, but always openly, always honest with our partners. But, but, the, but the fundamental business, Roger, hopefully I've described that uh, well enough, is, is, is liquid gold to the industry and important. Okay. Um, you, know, you know my style, Elliot. Um, I know you're very, very familiar with this style as well about, you mentioned it earlier, smart m and and everything like that. Um, I, I know you've got the ear of some very, very senior um, media sector bankers. I, I have to ask you, given what you've said there, which I agree with, given your cap table and your shareholders, I can't see a scenario where one football is still independent in 18 months. It's too valuable an asset. Uh, and this is in a moment where there's consolidation in the sector. You know, you can see uh, zone uh, in 11. You can see uh, uh, all over the place discovery. Uh, how, 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 what can you tell me about what, what you think one football's role is going to be in the consolidation of the media sector? Well, first, first, first of all, only once have I ever been involved with a business where as, as I started it, I thought I'm going to be selling this business. You should never build a business to think you're going to sell it, right? So, and, and the only one I did that in was dug out, funny enough, because um, the logic was this is going to be irresistible. And it was the totally, if I had gone a different approach, it would have been a lot easier. Good outcome, but one mistake. Nothing I've ever else been involved in, we've ever looked that there's going to be a day where there's, we hope there's going to be a knock on the door. You have to build for the long term. And so I think one football's doing that, right? We have to we have a great cap table, great understanding, but you know, there's been some pain in the system. We need to get that right. And so everything we're trying to do is make sure we have a long-term viable business for our shareholders and partners. So I'm gonna say that being almost like a disclaimer in a conversation. In terms of my opinion, I, I, whether it's partnerships, joint ventures, people wanna knock on the door, you think about what the, the media world is looking at. And if you look at rights, as an example, I'm going to get on my rights high horse for a second. And, and I'm going to touch on football just because it's easy, but it's relevant in everything. And I am I'm know um, Nick Clary would be delighted to come and chat to you about Roger after your uh, chat on that a few I'm weeks ago. I'm always here. Always um, here. And um, and uh, I'm a big fan of Nick's, actually. So I, 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 um, I'm sure if I can see him next, I'll persuade him to come on and... And, and try and do that. But um, if you, if, I'm going to put bucket in to a couple of concepts. So first of all, if you look at the media world, really rights is um, 
is still a disaster. The, sh- the timing of rights, the short length of them, is totally the problem. And if you take away the Premier League, and when you talk about, you know, everyone says about whether the Super League this, the Super League that, there already is a Super League. It's called the Premier League. Yeah. Because it's so different to everybody else. And you almost can't compare them and you're not going to catch them. You know, if you look at international rights of the Premier League is 1.8 billion, the nearest rivals, 900 million with Real uh, with uh, La Liga. So you wonder how much of that was off the back of the Messi-Ronaldo. Of course it is. Let's see where that goes now. So I, I have some questions there. Then you start to get, what, 250 it drops to for um, uh, for Serie A or, you know, whatever it is, 180 for... Um, for the Bundesliga, then you go down to 80 for League 1. Why are they bothering selling those rights on short-term cycles outside? Of, take La Liga out. The other three should just create a totally different model. You know, they should create a long-term brand-building model. If you're getting 180 million in the Bundesliga amongst 20 clubs, it's a rounding error. Why are you doing yeah, yeah. it? Bringing Brand some drinks. To, to create it. Equally, those who are buying those rights really don't own anything if they lose the rights. So what you need is something that's going to, one, reduce the marketing costs, which is why I think one football is a, a, a liquid gold element. Um, so whether or not that somebody sees that irresistible. Also, if you're trying to build a long-term B to C business as a league or a federation or working with private equity, then you need one football because one football, we delivered, I'll give you one quick anecdote on one football. We, we took the rights for the Bundesliga in Brazil. And I think the um, average season viewership, it was behind a paywall, so not entirely comparable. But the average viewership across the season, Roger, in Brazil, not per game, was about 1.5 million viewers a year in, um, in Brazil. We did it for one season, did a very different model, 31 million uh, across the season. So we know it works, you know, and also people need, and I'm not going to go on about piracy. I'm not going to, you need to create something that's so easy. If you live in Germany, as an example, why would you not be able to watch all those games globally? If you're traveling on holiday with a good product, half a million Germans live in the UK, you know, it's just, it's crazy that this stuff's not available for people. Hence why piracy is everywhere. And you can scoop this up. Plus, of course, it creates data creates the opportunity to long-term generate merch, licensing, betting where appropriate. That's where you need to take the whole rights game. And it needs to, but you're going to need to bring in serious capital and serious forward-thinking people to join these dots up. Others will be marriages of convenience. People will need each other to create a story to raise capital or find an exit or otherwise. So I think that the ecosystem of the bold ones will create a whole new model. And I think the very smart people from the outside can do that. And these leagues, a lot of these leagues need that help. Other businesses, I think, will just say, look, why don't we merge or why don't we do this? Because it seems to make sense. So, yeah, I do think I'm slightly biased, but I think one football is in a, a, a wonderful position. Um, but, you know, it's always it's always easy to say that in theory. Let's see where we are in practice. If in two years time we're an independent Carrying on as we are, that suits us fine too. It's not like we we need a day with destiny. Um, everybody in it is trying to build a long-term business. Uh, let's go up to 35,000 feet again. Let's just look at the sports sector. You've come in from another industry through dugouts and into one football, and you've you, you, you shared the vision of where it could go. 
as you've looked around the the sports industry, which before presumably was just a passion because it, you're 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 a football fan, you're an Arsenal man, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When you started to see private equity and VC starting to jump on the the bandwagon of of sport as it has done over the last decade or so. Do you think that the eyes have been fully wide open? Sport is a little bit different for, to other business. It's obviously binary, it's polemic, but it's also very um, humanistic in terms of it's fallible. Um, do you think that, and this is a real generalisation, do you think private equity in particular really understands sport as the beast it is, as opposed to the beast they'd like it to be? It's a great question. Um First of all, private equity um, people are, are pretty smart people, right? But they're also quite formulaic in a lot of the stuff they look at. They look, they almost have a checklist of questions. You know, when you're with them, you know, you, whether you're doing a deal on the buy side, sell side, raising capital, there's a lot of very bright people, 20-year-olds that come in the room and, and ask lots of different questions. I think that everything comes back to from the outside world when you look at sport, you think that there's enormous potential to do better. So, of course, slightly this becomes, well, we, it's like a turnaround or we can do this or we can create this or the sum of the parts are greater than the whole. There's lots of, everybody always thinks from the outside world, it, it seems easy. When you get into it, it becomes a little bit swampy and a little bit difficult to navigate. First of all, I think sports people are not great at accepting outsiders um, nor, by the way, in most industries, because they say, what do you know? I've been in this 20 years or 30 years. So I think there's an element of that. I also think it, it is when I see some of the deals that have been done in sport, it's like me saying to my kids, yeah, take this money, but go and do something good with it. Don't buy sweets or don't do yeah. this. And they, they nod and do the complete opposite. So I think that, 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 that maybe they need more people in private equity that really understand sport, who have the trust and the understanding of the pitfalls when they do these deals and don't come in stone cold from the outside um, and, and bridge that gap somehow, Giles, I think is the problem. But the private equity people are smart. They know what they, are they smart. know where the opportunities they are. are. And, they, and, and also they learn by mistakes. They get better each time. So this might be an iterative process. Um where some of the mistakes that appear to have been made, they won't make them again. Um, they just won't make them again. So I, 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 I think that's the best way I can answer that question, that I think in the long run they'll get it right. But I also think a lot of sport was focused too much on the rights and not the other opportunities in sport. And it's the easiest one to get their head round, betting on whether rights would go up or down or the different thesis that you can do in it. I think it was the easiest one for them to get their head round. I think there are bigger and better opportunities that over time they may well get their head round. Let's, that, that's a great answer. Um, let's really try and summarise. We've read, all of us on this podcast, listeners, we've read a thousand articles, the valuation of Chelsea, the valuation of Man United. Um, uh, there's two sides, like in any marketplace on price, there's the bid and the ask. There's two sides to valuations, two theses. There's a thesis that I've been talking about for the last month or so, which is this one. Uh, what you've just said there, uh, the idea that rights are always going up is flawed. They may not. Um, second one is the risk um, that you're, um, you're embracing when you invest in 
let's say a, a Spanish league or an Italian league is not being priced in. Your 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 job is pricing risk, Elliot. I don't believe the people that are looking at doing a deal in Serie A uh, have got any idea of the the kind of like. Um, risk elements that are in this country. And the third one is the increasing cost of capital. All three of those point to downward pressure on valuations. Right. Mm -hmm. The other side, Elliot, the other side is this one. If uh, sport can get itself re-rated as a consumer B2C business, and it can aspire to those billion fans that Man United says it's got, then it is massively undervalued, undervalued. What I think this whole industry is in the middle of just now is trying to work out the difference between those two sides and how they operate to get the re-rating, to get their hands on the data and to get their hands on those kind of like pender user valuations that other businesses have got. And I know you're right in the middle of this, Elliot. So you're the guy I want you to, to tell the listeners how you see this. Well, I'm, I'm definitely in the latter camp, not the former. So I'm in the, I think that they're undervalued. Um, and just to clear to any of the listeners, I'm not involved in any acquisitions or any potential acquisitions. This is just my feeling. I, I, um, I look at Manchester United um, and I think they've squeezed the lemon better than most on the commercial side in sport. Um, I think Richard Arnold was the first person to work out bifurcation of sponsorship into regions and different categories. A lot of the things that other people do now started at Manchester United, right? So they, they definitely sort of on some of the elements around traditional revenue commercial opportunities. But people may or may not know they they outsource the store at Old Trafford. They do other things. They don't control everything themselves, right? So that's an important element. Of course, a lot of clubs outsource catering and other things. What, what the problem is, is if you look again, it comes back to my comment earlier, Roger, I think they're undervalued if you can unlock the potential. And the question mark is, is do you buy into whether or not you're able to do that? Any business... An existing, long-standing, hundred-old-year-old businesses, in a lot of cases, these businesses, and with deep, long-standing members of staff, trying to create a different structure is really hard, especially when the fundamental problems with any sports franchise, but especially football clubs, is that constant need to be successful, hire the best players, and keep that element, right? So all my experience in football is... I remember one very major club that always used to tell me, don't come and see us on the day of a game. We won't be able to focus. That's right. And don't come and see us. And I never went and saw anyone when they got beat because they'll just be in such a bad mood, right? Because there's so much emotion involved in that side. But if you strip back what I call the other elements, and if you, you look at data as an example, increasingly data is something that can ascertain a value. Data and IP now is starting to become a valuable commodity to people. You see that in medical data in America. You see that in airline data around frequent flyer. Yeah. Yeah. You see certain companies that have been brave enough to break out the old and the new are doing very, very well. A company like Saks um, in the US did a fantastic job on that. And you look and, and, and one of the rumors I've heard very strongly around the Manchester United case is that one of the problems they're having is wrestling whether to sell the business or create a very different commercial arm with different set of investors and a different cap table because the the other yeah. 
And I've been working quite closely with a couple of major clubs on this, with some very, very bright people um, who know what they're doing to try and figure this out. Because you have to think about where the fundamental risks and problems are. One, it's people. Two, it's I've got to get off the, the drug of minimum guarantees. Three, three enthusiastic amateurs. So often people are trying to do things and they're very enthusiastic, but it's not their core set of capabilities and skills. And, and I, I always use this, and I know I might have used it with you before, Roger, sorry if I'm, I'm, I'm repeating it, but I look at things like licensing. So football clubs, I think the largest football club in the world for licensing is around 10 million a year, What Ferrari is 2.5 billion a year. And how can that be right? Yes, Ferrari has got the, the, the joke you was they make more money out of their key rings than they do out of their engines. But there are football clubs with enormous passion, but you can't build a world-class licensing business if you don't have the infrastructure. You need a team of IP lawyers. You need a team of yeah. other things involved in doing that. You need people going to negotiate with luxury brands or other people. You've got you've got the same thing. You've got the same thing around um, to build your database and convert yourself much more into a B two C business. You need to control e commerce. You need to control your fixed asset like uh, retail buildings. You need to control. You need to control the elements that are going to create the data. You walk into any nice shop anywhere in the world. First thing they've done is got an iPad out, making you fill in your information, and we all do it. And yet football yep. clubs football clubs probably don't know our birthdays, even the season ticket holders. So we they all agree with this, but it's it's how you unlock this. And so for me, carving an area out um, of the business and allowing those people to go and do that with investors willing to take some of the risk, where you always keep control, you can have a, a call option or otherwise into doing that, will accelerate all of your plans. And that that feels for me, and I'm, I won't get into too much detail on here, but that's something. It's the first time I felt like somebody's starting to crack the code, and um, and that's quite exciting to see how that plays out because that will be the thing that we've talked a little bit on here, or what people are struggling to get their heads round. If you can find a way to demonstrate that and bring the fans with you, this is a great thing for the fans. This is giving them a chance to engage more with them. You've got you've got to always bring your fans with you. And also remember that probably only 10% of your fan base is, is based in your country. The rest is international on the big clubs. So go out there and, and play this right according to the regions, territories, and countries you're working in. Then, then you've got something that means that $6 billion looks cheap for Manchester United. You know, and it's interesting you say that. You talk about the retail sector. I have a, a great pal who's very senior in an international retail piece and we were talking about first party data and what they know and how they sell and you're right he said the passion point that a football club or indeed many other sports it could be an IPL cricket club that is passion that that every retailer would give everything they could for because it's 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 unconditional love it 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 goes beyond loyalty and when we started to break down that the lack of knowledge of the fan um, very, very shocked. He said, you're 20 years behind the, the real world, which is, so the opportunity is there. As you say, you've got big fan bases. And one of the things Roger and I would love to to start Im- imploring, and this works in sponsorship as well, is stop selling the very big number that is very, very imprecise and start selling the real number that has precision and data attached to it. Because that's what that's what investors 
It's what sponsors, it's what everybody needs to, to, to know. Because you can't you can't bullshit a finance director no. if it isn't empirical. And I I went through a few rounds of that in my HSBC days when there were one or two lumpy moments, 2008-9 being a, a, a moment when you suddenly got to show your workings on a, on a golf tournament sponsorship. And um, yeah, I had to rely on other, other means to keep the budget sweet then in those days. <laughs> I know it's a, it's a great point, Giles. And I think it, it's all there. It's all in play. You just, the, you just have to understand the fundamental blockages and the risks involved. And if you can find interesting and elegant solutions for those, then you can unlock this. Um, and, and, and it's going to need leadership in a sporting club or a football club to get it, ownership are going to need to do it. Also, people forget is how um, relatively small a lot of very big sports clubs' commercial infrastructure is. It's tiny. You know, it, it's, yeah. it, it really is. And so if you can protect, if you like, the traditional revenue streams, keep them going, but carve out the others – you can and keep control of that, but also make sure you're not going backwards. You're in business. Okay, Elliot, uh, let's, you're a bull on that side. I'm going to come back to my side of the argument. I agree with everything you say, by the way, you know I do. Uh, however, um, maybe I should get into the insurance sector because all I think about these days is risk. Um, I struggle with these valuations from in, in Europe for one fact. Um, there's a lot of risks uh, and let's just talk about two risks. One is the risk of relegation and the other one uh, equally as important is the risk of not getting into the Champions League, not getting into the top four. I believe that um, European football, English football still doesn't understand how unstable that makes their league, their infrastructure, their governance, the risk elements are too high. There's eight teams in the Premiership that could go down and every single one of them uh, at this point in time is not taking any meetings to come back to your previous point. You can't get their attention. All they're thinking about is relegation. So I'm asking you with as, as a risk man, as an insurance man, does this not all ultimately end up by removing that risk and going to closed leaks? and having Super Leagues. What's your view on all that? Uh, another good question. Uh, um, I think um, I think now with both the regulator coming in the UK and the backlash from the fans in England, I, I would say the likelihood of any English clubs being involved in anything is very remote, um, uh, if zero. And... Um, but that doesn't mean I don't think there'll be something in the European leagues. And that's a, that's a marriage of necessity. Um, there's so, you know, I said to you earlier, there is a super league already. <laughs> it's called the Premier League. If the Premier League are um, generating 2 billion and no sign, interesting, when you talk about the thesis on rights, it's just an incredibly competitive league, albeit if City win again this year, it's five out of six years with one team winning it. Um, but, you never know a game's over, right, in the Premier League. They're all watchable. You know, you could watch the Crystal Palace City game on Saturday, 15 minutes to go. There's always, there's never this sort of, there's a, there's a compelling product, right? Entertainment is what it's all about. People enjoy it. So the Premier League, I think, is, and the Premier League teams wouldn't be part of any scenario. However, I, I do firmly believe that the European 
leagues will find something to do. As my, I'm not close to it, Roger. This is my opinion, but I, I, I would underestimate the president of Real Madrid at your peril. He's an incredible businessman, an incredible uh, operator. You know, having Barcelona and Real Madrid involved in anything is compelling, um, and you can build from that. And I, I suspect they will need to do something. They can't get near the Premier League without it. This is the um, point. And it's a marriage of necessity. So I, I think that's the case. Or Real Madrid and Barcelona reply to join the Premier League. Um, oh, you go and do something absolutely outlandish, which sounds ridiculous now, but would be accretive to the Premier League, right? So yep. there are, yep. there are, they're, they're going to look at all options, Real Madrid and Barcelona, to yep. think of what they can do. And, and it's driven from them in my opinion, if they can find people to stick to that, they could create something with enough value that would be worth them doing that and building from it. But, you know, there's a lot of court cases flying around. There's a lot of stuff involved. Let's see where that goes. But my my feeling is, is that there will be a European league excluding the English clubs. And it, let's um, go from 35, maybe even 50,000 feet at that point. Let's, let's get down to 10 feet. Let's talk about Pitch you. Pitch level. Let's talk- Let's get to let's get to, to the to the grassroots. You're, you're passionate about football. You're passionate about the business of football. That's very evident. What's your own personal um, passion? Where did it come from? How did it evolve? Were you a were you a, a very very hard left back that uh, was thwarted at an early age, or what was it? How did you get the love of of sport in general and maybe football in particular? Yeah, I'm, I'm, so I'm de- thanks, Joe. So I'm definitely a, a sports fan. I'm, I'm... I'll talk about that in a second. I guess my um, I had no choice when it came to Arsenal. Uh, the first picture of me is not in my mother's arms. It's with, I think it was Alan Ball's debut in December 30th, 1971. And I was, um, I was there's a picture of me in a little Arsenal thing and a couple of dodgy boots and Arsenal season ticket in the in the cot in the hospital. So I had no choice, right? Uh, that's the first picture of my mother was snatched away. The only, the only good news was I come from a family of Richard Richardson's and my mum put a stop to that. I was the first one, first the oldest one to escape that um, tricky dicky um, element. So I started there. My grandfather started going in the late 20s, Islington boy. Um, dad went in the 50s. Um, and I've been going now. My daughter goes. So it's a, a real North London heritage and you have no choice. And and I love what I was terrible. You know, as you get older, you think you were better at sport than you were. I was useless. So I was always the... <laughs> I was always the centre half that played. I always learned very early on, though, play with people that are much better than you to make you look good. That helped. And also, I was the one that if there was a really good player on the other side, I'd have to fight him to get sent off. Who did you want to be? Who is when you were a little boy and you imagined you were playing for Arsenal? Who was your hero at the time in the seventies? So in the in the in the late in the late seventies, it was uh, Liam Brady. Uh, so Chippy was just tremendous, and then. As I got into the 80s, really as I grew up in my sort of early mid-teens, it was Tony Adams, right? So um, um, I, I, I love players. I love players with that leadership quality that, you know, and if you're a, and there's people in every club that know that player that was just exceptional and take people with him, you know, what, and so Tony Adams, and even now, if I, I can meet most players and not be overawed, I can't, I can't even speak when I meet Tony Adams. It's still, uh, it's still a problem for me. So, but for me, it was Tony Adams, but, I, I, my my father and grandfather just love any left-footed players. They're, uh, they're yeah. they always look better. They yeah. always and, look better. 
So whether it was Brave, my grandfather's favourite player was Georgie Armstrong, who played for us and for those who are old yeah. enough to remember. Then there was always left footers, good left footers. Obviously now um, both my father and, and my grandfather, would they, my dad loves, he adores Saka. And Roger, I told you two years ago how good he was going to be. He did. And he is—he's an absolute Rolls Royce for football. And a wonderful human, so we're very proud of him. But, but, but Ellie, let's let's get on to that because you did tell me two years ago, and I've been basking in that glory um, this year when I said Arsenal were going to do well. It's really just listening to you two years ago. But uh, jokes aside, you know this was a period where Arteta was under pressure. If you remember the the documentary, the, he was under pressure, and you said to me. No, 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 no. They're building something quite unique at that club. So I'd like you to explain what that means and how you can see it, because it comes back to Giles's point about EQ and humanities and everything like that. How can you see that a club is on the right track building something positive and at the same time, you can see the, the opposite. You know, uh, I'm not asking you to, well, maybe I will, because you might enjoy it, to comment on Spurs just not being able to get anything going. You know, you've got Chelsea. I don't think anybody thinks they're building anything positive there. What was it you saw two years in Arsenal and you thought, oh, hang on a minute, this is the, going in the right direction? Uh, and and obviously, I'm, I don't work for the club. I've got a lot of very good friends there. Um, who, who are fantastic. I think everything about Arsenal, it was both on and off the pitch. They started and almost drew a line and said, okay, unless we create a, an atmosphere that everything we do, we have to be the best, then we're not doing it. They almost drew a line. The owners, the commercial side, the football side drew a line in the sand. And, and the, you know, I'm a, an Arsene Wenger you know, the early stage of it. In fact, my, my th- I feel that Wenger's greatest achievement was keeping us in the Champions League when we first moved to the Emirates, actually. For that period of time, we quoted some of the players that he got in the Champions League or even the team that beat Real Madrid in the Bernabeu when you had people like Abui at fullback and Senderos. I mean, it's ludicrous that they were beating Zidane or others. He His greatest achievement wasn't the Invincibles for me. It was he's, he's keeping us for that many years in the Champions League. So it was extraordinary. And with pressure on bank covenants and other things that people didn't have any idea the pressure. We had to get him to sign up to a long-term contract or the banks would lend Arsenal the money. So so that's that's something people don't realise. So now, of course, as always, nothing's forever. And of course, the last few years under Wenger, things slipped. And so, of course, Emery come in, struggled. You never want to follow the emperor. You want to be yeah. the mother. Do afterwards. That's David Moyes. <laughs> and up Moyes, and you can go all the way back to um uh who was the guy who followed Busby. It was it was a disaster. Um, oh McGinnis. yeah. Oh Guinness. God. Well, Guinness, yeah, McGuinness, Wolf McGuinness. So great know, remember. Yeah, great. So, so there, there's there, you never want to follow that person. So what I think what, what they did was they just made a decision to draw a line. And and I look at things, I know you might laugh, but just the Adidas campaigns that they started to run. You know, they the Adidas campaigns and the way Adidas and Arsenal nailed that about the feeling of North London, the community, you know, that built. And, and obviously then they, the song, Roger, that you and I, you know, that, that song gets me every time. So it's in, incredible. But they they create and they gave Arteta, and I know everyone always uses this expression, you've got to give people time. 
But they said, right, this is a project. We're doing it. We, we, we'll have create an esprit de corps across the club, and we're not going to. We're going to have a ton of non-negotiables. And if people aren't willing to do that, then they're not going to be part of it. And you know, when someone does it, it's easy to say that, but that that's that's ballsy. That's yeah. You know, that takes guts, and and people should be applauded. Now, whether we wherever we end up this year, and I know you laugh at me constantly. You're they up do. against you're up against the machine on the other side of Manchester. And and so, you know, with a team that's the youngest in the league, these big games towards the end, people just get tight. Things can yeah. happen. And, and we've got some big... So I, I'm not going to make any bold predictions. But the the quality of what they've done, that the, they're, they're, the way they're... I like it that agents say how difficult Arsenal are in the transfer uh, market. You know, they know what they want. They won't mess around. They won't overpay. You'll they've walk got, away from deals. Walk away. We're getting the sort of, you know, that lure of nonsense. And everything around the club hardened, Roger. It created a winning mentality. Yep. And in fact, you couldn't see all that. But then you see the the Amazon documentary and everyone went, blimey, Arteta was impressive. But yeah. of course, that only came out after what appeared. Now, everyone, fine lines in football. We had a lot of, a spine of our team went out. That was, um, those last few games of last season, Everyone thinks our hard under pressure. We were, we knew we were onto something. Um, so, very exciting. I, well, I think it's fascinating. What you're talking about here is culture and business culture. You 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 reference Howden and a, and a culture that's being built there. You've referenced it with a football club. We talked at the top of the show about um, the the rugby football union and and where England rugby is and isn't right now compared to where the French and the Irish are as as um, as rugby teams and it's all to do with culture it's all to do with setting a culture that the whole organization can understand and get behind and if you do you've got half a chance and when systemic from a management point of view when goals aren't properly articulated when there's too much splintering and you see this across sport as you do across business you see you see businesses that were strong becoming less strong and um empires uh, rise and fall and it there is no difference it, it's it's part of being the human system of management yeah i asked the same question on rugby on saturday too and i, I, and I love all sport you know i love i love elite sport right when and things that unite different people whether it's you know the masters watching the masters is a must thing for me the lions is a must thing for me you know those things are things but i asked her i said surely we must have the biggest talent pool of any rugby nation how are England so scalped? Yeah. And 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 I said it must be some I, I've got various theses on it, but I don't it comes to me, it's it, it feels like it, you have to create that culture and, and not accept people. We have an expression in how we have a no arsehole policy, right? So I think your blacks have one, Giles yeah, as well. Yeah. You no know, dickheads. No dickheads. We have a no arsehole policy and and it's and you, you, you have to live that. And if you don't live that, and, you know, with Arteta, Roger, you know, he dealt with Ozil, he dealt with Aubameyang, Luis, uh, Guanduzi, which was a nightmare bad apple that we ended up shipping out to Marseille. The, you, you had these people, yeah, you had these people in the club and, and it, you know, it cost us a lot of money, but we dealt with them. And, they, and, and, and now you can see the benefits. So I think that's, the, that's a great lesson. And plus he had an extraordinary tutor, you know, having Guardiola... You know, if you're anywhere near extraordinary people in your lives, if you can just take a little bit of their magic into your own, you're better. 
But um, isn't this, and this is what makes, I mean, when you think about, you apply this to sport, look at in, the England cricket team now, the way they're playing yeah. test match cricket. In, in the last five years, it has revolutionised. You can argue that IPL has changed the game, blah, blah, blah. But the way that now that this sport is being played from top to bottom, yeah. if you are a cricket fan, you are drawn in. And it is to do with culture and culture is such, and that again, it goes back to that EQ that we're talking about is yeah. the leaders understanding and then be able to communicate that across their entire, the, the whole system and believe in it, you've got half a chance. Well, let, let me, let, let me ask one last question. We run out of time, but on this culture thing, you mentioned national teams there. Um, I, I did a silly wee article a, a while ago about um, imagining top consultants uh, going into the FA and asking them a very simple question. Um, you've got all the money, the most mo the, the most uh, wealthy league. Uh, you haven't won anything for 60 years, but more importantly, none of your coaches are anywhere near the elite level anywhere in the world. Um, I know uh, you've got some views earlier on Southgate and everything like that. I just think the problem with, with, with English football and the FA is that they don't have some of the things you're talking about. You know, like management and culture is setting out some red lines. You've used that phrase a couple of times, red lines, non-negotiables. And, you know, I, I think that um, that World Cup was England's for the winning. And they, they, just, they just were afraid to win. In my opinion, they were afraid to win. Southgate had a chance and he backed off. Yeah, and I think it was the same in the Euro final. But look, I, I'm not a football coach. I'm not going to... I'm not going to necessarily pile into what Gareth Southgate's done around the atmosphere, around the players wanting to play for England is is commendable, right? He's created a nice culture there. The players want to turn up. None of them get these mysterious injuries just before, you know, a meaningless friendly. They all turn up for the games and he deserves a lot of credit. But maybe a wily old fox alongside you. A lot of people years ago used to have a very clever coach, whether it was Clough and Taylor, Terry Neal had Don Howe next to him, or for years Bobby Robson had Don Howe next to him for England. Sometimes you need someone to tap you on the shoulder and go, listen, we're under the cosh here. You know, Italy, Italy you know, we, from the minute we scored, we scored too early in the Euros. Crowd were out of control that night for various different reasons. Yeah. And, and the second half... You know, ten, you say, right, 10 minutes into that second half, we need to change this, you know, and, yeah. and we need to whether go three at the back or whatever. Sometimes you just need someone alongside. You look at a lot of these top coaches now, even Pep's got, they've all got someone go, look, you're too absorbed in the game. You yeah. need that minute. And I think Gareth Southgate could do with somebody who's been there, done it, won it. And uh, because frankly, we do not have a talent pool coming through. Um no. They do it. Look, you probably say Potter or, or um, Howe are the only two currently English-born people. I think Eddie Howe did. That really says everything, and that says it. And 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 so now they're looking to put Gerard or Lampard as the under twenty-one manager and groom him coming through. I still don't think great players make great managers by and by. But um, I, I just I think it's a fundamental problem around culture and making sure that you create a winning environment. But and both of those those two tournaments, England underperformed, even by getting to a final and a quarter final, they massively, from the potential. I went to the final in Qatar and I'm sorry you can't convince me that either of those teams are better than England. Yeah, 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 I agree. I agree. Uh, well, let's let's wrap this up with something I heard you say the other day on another call. You were talking about all of this and here's the quote. 
Um, oh, um, next Sunday is Mother's Day, so I'm going to take my mum <laughs> to the game. <laughs> That's how you sell that in your family. <laughs> yeah, it's better than a bunch of flowers, Roger. Right? So, um, so uh, my mum my mom is um, worse than any of us, actually. She, uh, when she, I gave them the tickets for the Bournemouth game, she's on the phone in tears and said, Mum, we've got 12 to go. Come on, we've only beat Bournemouth. But yeah, mum and dad are coming on Sunday. I'm looking forward to it. And um, yeah, that's the way it works in the Richardson household. Good for well, you. Fantastic mothering Sunday uh, for the Richardson clan. Um, yeah, I'm sure it'll be great. Um, Elliot, it's so lovely to have you uh, on this show. Um, you will always be a repeat offender for us and keep, we'll keep having you come on the show because I think th- this combination of, of, of the finance side also understanding the media side and, and very deeply into football. It's always going to be a theme for us and our United Entertainment. So please, please do come back. We'll obviously see you at the, the Como Sports Summit later on in the year, which uh, many people are, are inquiring if they could come in and be involved. Um, so anyone who uh, would like to speak to Roger, but the answer is probably uh, get on the waiting <laughs> list because that seems to be how it how it is. But um, we'll see you soon. But thank you so much for spending and sharing your time with us today. Uh, it's a pleasure, guys. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me on. Thanks, Elliot. All the best. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, there we go, Giles. I thought that was excellent. Covered everything we wanted to. Yeah, it's just, it's it's fabulous. You know, you and I, we work in this industry across the many different organisations we're part of and the people we're lucky enough to chat to through the podcast and through your work with Alba Chiara as well. And I think that the more that we hear from people like Elliot, the more that we hear from from the the big dogs who are shaping the future, the more we'll get to the point. You know, I think one of the, the criticisms that I sometimes get, and I'm pretty certain you do, is that people feel we're down on sport, that we're somehow, we're, 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 we're critical. And I think where this comes from, and Elliot absolutely espouses it, I think we're critical because we love it and because we want to see sport um, fulfil all of the different areas that it does in in the world, from obviously from finance to, fu- to, to, to for, for 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 growth, but also because what sport represents for people, for families, like we've just heard, you know, a Mother's Day f- treat for the Richardson family, and all the rest of it is sport matters, and therefore, if we it, as this world changes, as technology, as commercial landscapes change, if we through the guests we get can help take us to that point quicker. Um, then it's it's uh, it's good for everybody. So I'm looking forward to the yeah. Other you know, listen. You know, I I I think it's misunderstanding. Certainly, me. I'll speak for myself. Uh, thinking I'm down on sport. What, what where everything comes from me is this. It's what you said earlier. People would die for the the, the customer loyalty. Uh, if you allow me to use the word customer, the fan passion uh, that is around sport. It, there's nothing else like it. And we live in a world now where that is everything in business. Know your client, know your customer, know what you what they want, try and sell more to them, upsell. So when I get down on sport, I think they have got the most beautiful diamond in their hand and they, in the main, in the main, have no idea what they're doing with it. Now, if I then, when I call that out, whether it's the RWRU or whether it's UEFA or, or, or the IOC or all of these people who have basically taken the golden asset 
and stayed on automatic cruise control at 70 miles an hour on the motorway, then uh, that, that, that's, that's, they're going to get criticised for that, for me, because in a world, as we heard Joe Markovsky say, where it might not be the golden asset uniquely, uniquely going forward because there's so many other things, we can't be this complacent as an industry. We need to up our game. We need to, as as we heard, get the, the passengers out, get the dead weight out and bring in the elite performers because an elite product needs elite management, elite governments and elite performers. And, and you know, that's why if you want to say I'm down on sport, it's frustrating. It's frustrating. And I feel the clock is going tick, 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 tick. And we've maybe got five years, maximum 10, where we can sort this out before it's all going into computers and uh, Web3 gaming and, and, and all that kind of thing. So uh, when Elliot comes on and you hear all the things he's talking about, he's an innovator. And, and that's why, you know, I like to hang about with him and, and so many of the listeners of this podcast will be in the same position. Well, very well said, Rog. Um, and I think we'll get more guests that will continue to, to, to bang this drum that we can all learn from and hopefully take things forward. Right, well, that's it for, for this week. Brilliant to have Elliot on. Rog, I'll see you soon somewhere. I don't know where, but um, it's about time we had a, a glass of red together and chewed the fat in person, all this virtual yeah, stuff. Yeah, for sure. Need, and, I need to come through London, yeah. And uh, um, I suppose we should tell people how they can follow the podcast. I can never remember this bit of the script. Let so me do this. We better do that. So. You're better at than me. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. We're missing Mr. Williams here. Uh, if you want to follow us, you can follow us on Twitter and entertain there. That's the word R. You can follow Giles at, at Giles Morgan seventy one, and you can follow myself at RPM Como, as in the lake, as in the lake. Roger. Until next time. Take care. Great stuff. Thanks, Giles. Thank you.